This series is all about the sounds of the past and the people who researched them. And even though sound seems to be ephemeral, there are many different ways that it leaves its traces. And today, it's language that functions as a kind of record of the movement of people and ideas over hundreds of years. Their Arabic pronunciation is really very strange, only because from the very beginning, it was a multilingual, translingual production of recitation. And that's something which even contemporary Jahriya were not entirely aware of. Dr. Guan Tian Ha is Assistant Professor of Religion at Haverford College in the USA. He's now spent many years researching Sufi Muslims in Western China. They speak Chinese at home, but they gather together to recite the Quran and Arabic poetry in praise of the Prophet Muhammad. <laughs> One interesting thing about this recitation is that even though performed in groups, uh, is not entirely performed in unity. You find slight disparities in the voices. So the voices don't really fall, you know, uh, onto the same pitch. You have tensions and disparities in the recitation, which eventually produced a kind of remarkable, undesigned harmony. really fascinated by how this is possible in the course of history and how this kind of, uh, you know, non-unified recitation produced a sense of community among the Sufis across great geographical distances. Um, um, how did you end up researching this? Uh, it's interesting. I accidentally entered this community when I was doing my PhD research. My, my PhD uh, dissertation was on an entirely different topic. And I didn't really think that I would have a chance to go back again to really pursue this research until I got this job at SOAS. Uh, it's a job based on a project titled Sounding Islam in China. So I luckily got this position as a postdoctoral researcher uh, in the project. And that gave me a chance to go back to this recitation. As I said, you know, in my initial encounter, uh, with this community, I was really fascinated by, the, by this kind of uh, really odd to me, odd dynamic uh, in the group in terms of, you know, how, how the recitation was produced um, and, and how the harmony was produced. So I, I had this hope to go back and this, this project gave me the opportunity to eventually go back. That's amazing. I, I just assumed that you'd kind of co-designed this, but you 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 already knew that this was interesting, and then this job appeared, and you didn't help write that. Is that right? Exactly. It's exactly. It's a stroke of serendipity, really. Yeah, that's amazing. Um, so uh, tell us something about um, the history of these people then in in China. Um, so what's the the group called? How do you pronounce that? Uh, the group is called Jahriya. 
and the word jahr in Arabic means uh, being loud or being public. So literally the jahriya means the loud ones or the really public ones. And they are so-called because their recitation, especially their remembrance of God is recited out loud. Unlike some other Sufi groups where such remembrance was, you know, was read silently. So is it Chinese people who uh, converted or Chinese Muslims who took up Sufism or did they come in as Sufis? Uh, do, do we know what, how that happened? Uh, that's a great question because Sufism, uh, especially the more influential Sufi orders such as the Naqshbandiya, they began to emerge in the so-called post-classical period, which is basically post-13th century. And, uh, and the center of Sufi orders in the post-classical period was in Central Asia, not in the Middle East. So in fact, if you look at the map, uh, the center of, of Sufism uh, is located in contemporary Eastern Iran and Afghanistan. So that's very close to China. And what we had was the spread of Sufism from Central Asia, both West and East, West to the current Middle East, Turkey, North Africa, these places, and eastwards, you have the entry of, uh, of Sufism into China, especially Western China, the Uyghur region, and also the, the more Sinophone Muslim region as well. And this happened, uh, I think, specifically for China, this happened around uh, probably 17th to 18th centuries. Okay, and, um, and is, it, is it like that knowledge or those practices moving or people or both? It's both, I think, but largely we have many uh, Sufi missionaries traveling to China, both from Central Asia and South Asia. We see this kind of uh, movement of human beings, even in the 20th century, you have, you know, Sufi missionaries coming from India and Pakistan, well, basically India, that's even before uh, Pakistan appeared. So you have this constant movement of ideas and people. And uh, these Sufi orders still remain rather prominent in northwestern China, not so much in other areas. And whereabouts are you from? Oh, I, I was born in, in a city very close to Beijing, eastern China. And okay. so, so, we, so this is a new world to me as well. But how, coming from Beijing, how did you happen upon this, this, uh, this group of people, these Sufi orders? Um, I think because I was born and raised a Muslim myself and uh, for it's just I I think I mean I love food so and I couldn't imagine myself doing field research in a community where I couldn't share a meal with my interlocutors and uh, that means that really limits my possibility but at the same time because anthropology studies people who are different from from yourself so I thought I need to strike a balance between familiarity and strangeness. So um, with the, the sharing of meals with people, is, is this because of, you know, that uh, maybe the risk that there'll be pork in food or what? Why could you not share food easily with other groups of people? Well, I mean, if you do research, uh, especially in East Asia, it's just impossible not to have pork in a meal unless you do research among vegetarians. You know, pork is such a common ingredient and, and lard and other, you know, similar uh, derivatives from pork. So it's really hard not to, <laughs> not to, not to eat pork. So um, when Sufism then started to become established in, so 17th and 18th centuries in, in China, um, 
what what evidence exists now? I mean, how how do you know when they arrived and what they were doing and and uh, these kind of um, you know that this kind of oral culture that that you're talking about? Uh, in some Sufi orders, we do have you know hagiographies from those times. Maybe a slightly later, not. Could you just say uh, what hagiography from... is? Sorry to interrupt. Oh yes. Sorry, uh, hagiographies are basically uh, the legends, stories, and the you know it's it's more like a collection of the words and deeds uh, of past saints because Sufis are defined by uh, in a way saint veneration. So these hagiographies are uh, textual archives of the of the words and deeds of past deceased saints. So we're able to confirm some details regarding history from these hagiographies. An interesting thing about these texts is they were written uh, in a mix of Arabic, Persian, and Chinese. And sometimes it's hard to tell which language they're using because they might be using the Arabic script, but the language is Chinese. And it's not Mandarin Chinese, it's local dialect. So that's also where sound became interesting because you see uh, the movement of the same sound, the same phoneme moving across different languages. You see the same sound being reproduced in Arabic script, in Persian script, and then in Chinese. And that really had a very concrete impact on how people pronounce Arabic and by extension, how they recite. That's so interesting. I want to ask you more about that. But first, can I just ask uh, about these saints' lives? So are they, uh, are they Chinese saints then? That So when it's their life, we're seeing um, you know, their, their life in China at the beginning of all of this, or, or are they from somewhere else? I think it's really, it's really hard to say because, uh, you know, the Sinophone Muslim group, just like, just like all the people in the world, you know, they mix different origins in history. Uh, if you go back to the history of Islam in China, you know, especially, let's say, go to the 13th century, even earlier, uh, you know, many of the Muslims that came to China were Arabs or Persians or other Central Asians. So it's a very complex uh, ethnic origin. And this kind, this kind of combination of different ethnicities uh, produced uh, the Sinophone Muslims in China. So I think by the 18th century, one might say they are becoming, they were becoming more Chinese than before. Um, so these um, hagiographies, they're kind of what, the, the life of the saint and, and the, the deeds that they did that, that made them saintly then? Uh, yes, and also there is also a genealogy because uh, this idea of silsila, which means genealogy in Arabic is quite essential for Sufis. It's, it's not like you can claim to be a Sufi. You need to say who your teacher is. You need to be able to produce a genealogy that traces your own current status back to even to Muhammad himself. So you need to be to, to be able to produce this text to say, you know, I have my own history, I have my own genealogy, and my right to be a Sufi master was passed to me, was given me by my own master. So tell me more about this movement of sounds then. Um, can you give me any examples? Um, yes, um, for instance, you know, we remember history in different ways. You know, sometimes we remember history through texts. Sometimes we, ha we know consciously our connection to history. And sometimes we just don't really know where we come from. But, but you know, our body also remembers, our behavior also remembers, our language also remembers sometimes on behalf, on behalf of us. So, so in a way you can do an archeology span of, uh, of yourself, your identity, your history by studying your own language and discover, expose 
historical connections you are not aware of. And that's what I did with the Jahriya sound because one uh, enigma about the Jahriya recitation is their Arabic pronunciation is really very strange, odd, according to, according to many Muslims, because if you listen to it, it doesn't sound uh, Islamic at all. And the pronunciation doesn't sound Arabic at all. It's actually because the Jahriya used to be multilingual. You know, the earliest saints uh, were able to speak Chinese, a bit of Turkish, uh, Persian, and, uh, and Arabic, of course, and even a bit of Tibetan. So, so the recitation sounded substandard according to you know, Arabic standards, only because it, it wasn't purely Arabic from start. From the, from the very beginning, it was a multilingual, translingual production of recitation. And that's something which even contemporary Jahriya were not entirely aware of. So in that, in that sense, I think, you know, it's really, in a way, sound became this uh, special vantage point to reconnect with a forgotten history. Yeah, that's amazing. So, so these are the recitations that uh, people nowadays are learning. Is it the pronunciation that's influenced by Tibetan and Turkish and so on? Or, or, or are there words in there? Well, we have uh, citations from Persian works, for instance, direct citations. Uh, Farsi sources or Persian sources, and there's there are also details in the uh, in the hagiography uh, that tell us uh, some of the early followers write uh, Turkic, you know, not necessarily contemporary Turkish, but an earlier Turkic variation of the language, and they wrote in Turkic, and they wrote Turkic on their banners, flags, and which remained uh, incomprehensible to other Muslims in the, in the area and to the imperial officials. So that's another hint that, you know, Turkish or Turkic language might have been one of the earliest languages spoken in the order. Uh, and so when you're doing your research, this just sounds so complicated for you. You're, you're always kind of doing, uh, you know, becoming a linguist. Did you, you had to learn their Chinese dialect or language? Yes, yes. Was that really difficult to learn? Uh, it's not easy, but I think if you stay there for a year or so, if you have Mandarin, I think it's not insurmountable. And then you're looking, are, are you looking at these old documents? You need to have Arabic, Persian and Chinese at the same time and need to know the local orthography to understand the text. So it's not as easy as, as people might think. No. So you've got regional and language variation. And then also um, the way people write changes over time, doesn't it? So to read old handwriting is really hard, even in your own native exactly so did exactly you do and, and by yourself or did you have someone that helped you uh i have you know my my uh, interlocutors in the field who can help me sometimes but mostly myself and it's also interesting to notice that uh, the hagiographies especially those chinese parts you know they really stand out because they are transcribing the actual the actual language the actual sounds you know how people speak the language it's not really you know it's not really uh, you know, I mean, you can hear the regional accent, the regional dialect. So, so the text is at the same time a kind of sound archive. And especially for Chinese, because of the way Chinese is normally written, you, you see the meaning of the words, but you wouldn't know how anyone 
hundreds of years ago actually said it, would you? Exactly. But but in the way they're writing, you are getting some of that information. Exactly. But um, also, you are. Um, you said you said you're an anthropologist, so you're you want to know uh, about something else apart from just uh, linguistic change, don't you? So why is this interesting to you? I think I was fascinated by their resilience and persistence throughout the years. You know, they they underwent multiple suppressions, really. Uh, violent, bloody suppressions by the imperial court, and even in contemporary times, they had, they faced uh, political pressure. So I was really fascinated by how uh, the practice of recitation, how sound can really sustain people through these years and gave people hope and power. <laughs> reciting things that have a tradition to them so in some way that's a connection is it with the with the past uh, Sufis yes you know they they recite with a certain melody a certain rhythm and this is passed down to them by their masters and and the interesting point is uh, different reciters might have different genealogies they may follow different teachers and different geographical areas may also have their own unique styles and it really uh, fascinating thing is when you have these different styles, different, you know, slight variations in the melody come together in the same room, they produce a remarkable harmony. you know, probably five, six hundred recordings of these recitations, both audio and video. And I'm also uh, trying to collaborate with more colleagues to build uh, a free online archive uh, with all these recordings. So researchers and, and, and people interested in such recitation can get access free of charge anywhere in the world. Find out more about the work of Dr. Guan Qianha on the website and learn more about Chinese Sufism. Thanks to the Jahriya community for the recitations of the Orad, the Surat al-Mulk and the Muhammas. <laughs>